Isaiah chapter seven verses one to seventeen. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzzah, king of Judah, Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount and attack against against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim,、uh, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, "Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jasham, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway." To the washer's field, and say to him, "Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smothering stubs of firebrands, at the fierce anger to Rezans and Syria and the sons of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised devised it." Devised evil against you, saying, "Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it." Thus says the Lord God: It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Zira is Damascus, Damascus. And the head of Damascus is risen, and within sixteen sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as soul or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, "I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test." And he said, "Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and." Bared a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil, and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people, and upon your father's house. Such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you again today. I missed you guys last week.、Um, if you don't know, I did a pulpit switch last week, which was awesome. I got to go share at another church, and you guys got to have evangel. Come here and share God's word with you, and it was a lot of fun. But also on weeks where we do that, I miss you guys.、Um, 
You know, I think there's a lot of value in doing, doing pulpit swaps and having guest preachers because the power in preaching doesn't come from the fact that Eric's up here. It comes from the fact that God's word is being preached. And so having other people up here to teach God's word to us is powerful in reminding us of that truth. But at the same time, on weeks where I'm somewhere else for that to happen, I miss you guys. And it's great to be back here with you. And thankfully, Evangel did a great job last week sharing God's word with us. He kicked off our Advent series. And as he mentioned last week, our churches, his church and the bridge are doing a parallel Christmas series this year. We're both looking at the prophecies of Jesus' birth in the book of Isaiah to see what we can learn about Jesus from this Old Testament book. And so last week, Evangel looked at Isaiah chapter 9 and the prophecy about this child who would be born, who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he reminded us that we need to place our hope in God, not in the things of this world, no matter how powerful and strong those things may appear. And this week, we're moving backwards in Isaiah, going to Isaiah chapter 7, Uh, But we're going to pick up on that same big question from last week. Who or what are we going to place our hope in? It's a major theme of the book of Isaiah. And throughout the book, we see when we place our hope in God, things go well. When we place our hope in anything or anyone else, things don't go well. And that truth is staring us straight in the face in today's passage. And so as we look at today's passage, what we're going to see is that God is reliable even when his ways seem foolish. God is reliable even when his ways seem foolish. And we have three points, a word, a baby, and a word and a baby. Keeping it simple. But before we jump in and look at the passage, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Thank you for the chance to read your word and study your word and learn about you from your word together as a church family. I pray that as we look at your word today, that your name would be honored, that your name would be lifted high, and that we would grow in our love for you and our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, a word. So today's passage starts with some historical background and lots of big names. Thank you, Irene, for getting us through all of those big names. In the future, if I ask any of you to do scripture reading on a week where there's lots of big names, do you know the secret for reading big names in the Bible? Just pretend like you know what they sound like, because no one else knows any better than you do. (laughs) Um, So we're introduced to a bunch of names and a bunch of people and places with a bunch of weird names, and I'm guessing that none of us here are experts on ancient Near Eastern history or geography. Am I right? Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to put a map up on the screen to help us make sense of what's going on here. And hopefully this map can help us sort it all out. So the passage starts with a guy named Ahaz. We're told that he is the king of Judah and he is reigning over Judah in the city of Jerusalem. Now Judah is that green area on the map labeled Judah. If you know your Old Testament, You'll remember that a couple generations after King David ruled over Israel, the nation split in two. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel. That's the pink area right above Judah. That's called Israel on the map. The southern part kept having David's descendants as their kings and took the name Judah, which is, again, the green area on that map. 
And so in this passage, if you see Judah or Jerusalem, that's the capital of Judah, or Ahaz, that's the king of Judah, or the house of David, that's the the, um, royal family reigning over Judah, that's all referring to this green area on the map. So Judah, Jerusalem, Ahaz, house of David, that's all this green area. And we're told at the start of the passage that there are two nations who are coming to attack Ahaz and Judah. One of them is Israel, which is also referred to in the passage as Ephraim. That's the tribe of Israel that their king at the time came from. And they're led by their king, a guy named Pekah, the son of Remaliah. I know, lots of big names. But if you see Israel or Ephraim or Pekah or Remaliah in this passage, it's all referring to that pink area right there. And then the other nation that's attacking Judah is Syria, or if you don't use the ESV, it might be translated as Aram in your Bible. It's, it's labeled as Aram of Damascus, that other pink area north of Israel on this map. And they, it's sort of like me and Mar in Burma, two different names for the same place, Aram or Syria. Um, but they're led by their king, Rezin, and their capital is Damascus. So if you see Syria or Damascus or Aram or Rezin, that's the pink area up top. So Judah, Jerusalem, Ahaz, house of David is green. Israel, Samaria, Ephraim, Pekah, Remaliah is Israel, the pink area. And then Syria, Aram, Damascus, Rezin is the other pink area. And I know it's a lot of names to keep straight. But remember, we do this every day in our world. Right? Like we know if you hear something coming from the US or America or DC or Biden, it's all referring to the same place. This is confusing to us because we don't live in that world. But we do this every day. And I want to encourage you this isn't something you have to be an expert to start to figure out. The more time we spend studying our Bibles and just learning the world, world of the Bible, the more this will actually make sense to us. But Evangel message, uh, mentioned to us in his message last week that there was a war coming around the time that this passage was written. And everyone had to pick which side they were going to align with. And we see here at the start of today's passage where at least one of the battle lines is drawn. Israel and Syria are teaming up to attack Judah. Now, why? Why did Israel and Syria want to attack Judah? And the answer is that a little bit to the northeast, far enough away that it's not on this map, there was another country called Assyria. And I know, again, very confusing that there's Syria and Assyria and they're different countries. I didn't come up with these names. But there was this country called Assyria that was far up off this map. They were the world's superpower of their day. They were the empire. They were, as all empires do, expanding taking over new territories, and guess who was next in line to be conquered? Israel and Syria. And they, like most small nations, liked the idea of being independent, liked the idea of being their own country, did not like the idea of being conquered by a world superpower. And they realized, on our own, we cannot fight these guys off. But if we team up, maybe there's a chance. If the two of us team up, We're stronger than either one of us on our own. But if we can get a team of three, that makes us even stronger. 
So these two nations came together and they came to Judah and they said, join our alliance. Come with us, fight against Assyria, and maybe the three of us together can fight them off. And if you notice, Israel and Syria would be between Judah and Assyria. So when they came to the king of Judah, Ahaz, and said, join our alliance, he said, no thanks. I don't know if you've looked at the map lately, but there's these other countries, you guys, blocking me from being attacked by Assyria. I don't want to make these guys any more mad at me than they already are. So I'm just going to stay out of this. I'm going to keep the world's superpower from being upset with me. I'm going to stay safe. You guys have fun fighting them. I'm just going to chill here on my own. And the kings of Israel and Syria did not like that response. They said, here's what we're going to do. Before Assyria comes here and conquers us, we're going to get our armies together. We're going to attack Judah. We're going to kill their king. We're going to put another guy on the throne who will swear allegiance to us because he is only king because of us. And he's going to join our alliance so that now we have three countries to put a united face forward against Assyria. It's a brilliant plan, right? Well, they come, they attack, and they did quite some damage. We see in a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 that at one point in this battle, they killed 120,000 men of Judah in one day and carried off another 200,000 people of Judah as captives to be slaves, who they eventually released. That's 320,000 people. For reference, scholars estimate that the population of Judah at this time was 350,000. So they decimated the nation, but guess what they didn't do? Kill the king. And so they still have not accomplished their goal. They still haven't quite taken over this nation. And that's where Isaiah chapter seven picks up. Ahaz, the king of Judah, hears reports that another attack is coming and he's getting ready. He's preparing to make sure the water supply will be safe if there's a siege on their city. And at this moment, Isaiah shows up to the king as he's strategically preparing to withstand this invasion with a message from God of hope and peace. The message says the attack will fail. Israel and Syria are going to be completely wiped out. The ones that Ahaz is so afraid of, the ones causing him so much fear, they're going to be destroyed themselves. And, and here's what's super shocking about this promise. Ahaz, we're told in other passages, was a wicked king. He was a terrible person. Second Chronicles 28 actually says the reason God allowed him to be defeated so badly in that battle where they lost 120,000 men in one day was a judgment for his evil and idolatry. Again and again, Ahaz does not trust God. He worships idols of all sorts. He sacrificed his children to idols. He was not a good dude. Not the type of guy you want ruling your nation. And yet, in the moment of his greatest need, God doesn't wait for Ahaz to sort himself out and get everything right before he offers help. He proactively sends this messenger to Ahaz to speak peace to him. It's completely an act of grace. God is so graceful, graceful and merciful to this king. And let me ask you, is anyone here a little bit jealous of Ahaz? Like, don't you wish that God would send messengers to you with words of, of peace and triumph when you're in the middle of crisis? Does anyone else want that? 
That'd be great, right? I don't think anyone here is leading a nation, so we're not going to face quite the same circumstances that Ahaz did. But like, what about when your office is making people redundant and you just have this feeling that my job is one of the top ones that's about to be cut? Wouldn't it be great for God to send you a messenger and just say like, it's all going to be okay? Or what about when you're parenting a rebellious child and no matter how hard you try to do the right thing as a parent, all your efforts just send, seem to send your child deeper and deeper into rebellion. And you feel like this terrible parent because you want to enjoy parenting your kid, but a big part of you just can't wait for the day where they're not under your roof anymore, where they're not your problem anymore. Wouldn't it be awesome in that moment to have God send you a messenger and just say, hey, God's with you. He's going to sustain you. Everything's going to be okay. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And I think when we read a story like this, it's easy to think how reassuring that would be and, and to long for that to happen. But I want to ask us, would it? Would it really be reassuring? Would it really help us in that moment? I'm going to leave you with that question. We're going to come back to it in a minute. But first, we're going to look at point two, a baby. We see in verses 10 through 12, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, that's where the, the place of the dead, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. So God promises Ahaz a victory, and then he offers him a sign. Now, a sign is a nonverbal marker that God gives as a proof or reminder that his word is true. So if you know the story of Noah, the flood comes, Noah and his family are on the ark, they get off the ark, and God sends them the rainbow as a promise or a sign of the fact that he will never destroy the earth with a flood again. Or if you look in the book of Judges at the story of Gideon, God calls Gideon to raise up an army and, and defeat the people who are oppressing Israel, and Gideon prays. He's like, God, I, I want to obey you, but I want to make sure this is really you. So I'm going to take this fleece, I'm going to put it outside tonight, and when I wake up in the morning, if this is wet and the ground around it is dry, I'll know it's you. And, and he does. He comes out in the morning, the fleece is wet, the ground is dry, and then one more time, Gideon's like, all right, tomorrow do the opposite. Fleece dry, ground wet, and it happens again. And that's a sign for Gideon that God is really the one who's given him this command to raise up the army. And so here, God commands Ahaz to ask for a sign, literally any sign he wants to prove that God will keep his word. God says, ask anything. Ahaz could have said something, something silly, like let a tree grow out of the ground right here. He could have said something way more serious, like these two kings attacking me. Like let them just die in their sleep in the middle of the night. And when I hear the spy reports that they're not around anymore, I'll know this was God. He could have said, let a hole open up in the ground and swallow these armies that are attacking me. And God would have done it. God says, ask anything. But that's not what Ahaz says. He says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now on one level, that sounds really noble. Like Deuteronomy 6.16 tells us, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he quotes that verse to him. So it sounds like Ahaz is doing the right thing here, but he's not. Because you see, God commanded him to ask. 
God commands Ahaz to ask for a sign because he personally wants to show Ahaz that he is trustworthy, that he will keep his word. And Ahaz's response is his way of saying, God, there is absolutely nothing you could do that would convince me you're worth trusting. Ahaz says, God, there's absolutely nothing you could do that would convince me you are worth trusting. He sounds really holy. He sounds really good, but he's actually using that holy sounding response as a shield to mask his disobedience and make it look okay, but it's not. And because of his disobedience and rebellion, God himself chooses a sign. Look at verses 13 to 17. Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So he's saying there's going to be a sign. God's going to give them a sign, even though Ahaz refused to ask for one. But now, because of Ahaz's unbelief, this sign has a double meaning. Yes, it still is proof that judgment is coming on these other nations that are attacking him. But now, because of Ahaz's disobedience and rebellion and refusal to trust God, the sign is also a proof that judgment is coming on Judah. And what's the sign? Behold, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God's going to send a baby. And this baby will prove God's faithfulness to keep his word. And of course, as good Christians who know our Bibles, we all know that this baby is? No, I got you. (laughs) It's not Jesus, at least not in the immediate context. Isaiah's not talking about Jesus. If you look at chapter 8, It actually tells us, Isaiah goes to the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceives and bears a child. If you have a prophecy about a child and then the next chapter, a child's born, there's usually a connection right there. And even more clear, later in chapter eight, he refers to that child not once but twice as Emmanuel. So that seems to be the baby he's talking about right here. And actually in the context of the immediate prophecy, it wouldn't make sense for this baby to be Jesus. This baby is a sign for King Ahaz that the nations attacking him are going to fall and be judged by God and that his nation will be judged by God for his lack of faith. Ahaz lived over 700 years before Jesus was born. For this sign to mean anything to Ahaz, he has to see it during his lifetime, 700 years before Jesus. And so that's why in chapter eight, Isaiah goes to his wife who is The Hebrew word for virgin here can actually mean virgin or young woman. So that's his wife here. She conceives by completely natural means here. And then she's going to get pregnant. And this baby is going to be inside her for nine months. And then she's going to give birth and she's going to breastfeed the baby for about, I don't know, six months or a year. And after about a year, the baby will be able to eat curds and honey, which is baby food in that day. And so by that time, Maybe about two years after Isaiah has this conversation with the king, the attacking armies will be gone. The attack by Israel and Syria 
is not going to succeed. It will all be over within a couple of years. And God's saying, Ahaz, anytime you doubt that this is true, just look at Isaiah's pregnant wife or newborn baby. That's the sign that my promise is true. They're the sign to reassure you that I'm going to keep my word. Now, again, if God during your own difficult times, gave you these reassuring promises and then sent you visible, tangible signs to prove to you that he would really keep his word. Don't you think that would give you so much more peace and patience and joy in the midst of those hard times? Wouldn't it be so reassuring to have not just a promise from God, but a sign that you can look at and touch and and see with your own eyes? And the fact that we feel like that would be so reassuring to us, I think makes Ahaz's response to God so shocking to us. Because first he refuses to trust God. He refuses to ask for a sign. But then we see in a parallel passage in 2 Kings chapter 16, that rather than trusting God to give him victory, Ahaz reaches out to Assyria, the world's superpower of the day, the one that's threatening Israel and Syria in the first place. And Ahaz pays them a ton of money that he took from God's temple. Ahaz offers to make his country servant to their country and subject to them as a way of bribing them to come and attack Israel and Syria. Now, from a human perspective, that's a a very wise tactical move. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? You get your enemy's enemy to attack them so that you can be safe. But it's a complete lack of faith. The whole point of the book of Isaiah is that a merely human level is not the way the world operates. And when we live as if the merely human level is all there is, rather than trusting God, things don't end well. And this lack of faith by Ahaz is why God says in verse 17 of today's passage that Emmanuel is not only a sign of Judah's salvation, but also of their judgment. Did you notice that in verse 17? The Lord God will bring upon you and upon your people, the king of Assyria. It's not just your enemies being judged now. Now it's you too. If Ahaz had listened to God, sat back and did nothing, God said he would have used the Assyrians to to wipe out Israel, to wipe out Syria, to rescue Judah. But because Ahaz relied on human wisdom and brilliant human military tactics rather than God, the advancing Assyrian armies aren't going to stop at Israel and Syria. They're going to sweep through into Judah. They're going to bring devastation worse than Judah has seen at any point since it became a nation. And you may be thinking, how? How could Ahaz refuse to trust God when God had spoken to him so clearly and gave him a sign? But think about it. His city, where he lived and ruled and reigned, was being, getting ready to be attacked by enemies. Enemies who not too long before killed the bulk of his army, carried off the rest of his nation into captivity. And this word is spoken to him saying, you're going to have victory. But then he wakes up the next morning and the morning after that and the morning after that. And every spy report he hears just says the armies are getting closer and closer and closer. The armies are still coming. Things are getting worse. And yeah, he has this sign promised to him. And based on God's character, my guess is that up until he reached out to Assyria for help, it wouldn't have been too late for him to repent and have this sign only as a sign of God's blessing rather than judgment too. But you know what? I have never led an army uh, or a nation at war. 
But if I did, you know what I think would be the least helpful thing possible in that war effort? A baby. I mean, what's a baby going to do, right? Like, uh, it's, even if it grows up to be the greatest military commander of all time with the combined wisdom of Sun Tzu and Alexander the Great and Napoleon, he's not going to have that for another 20 plus years. He can't fight. He can't do anything. Right now, he's a distraction and a drain on resources. That's not what I want if I'm leading a country at war. When you're facing an attack from an army that has the power to break you, nothing seems more empty and hollow than a word from God saying everything's going to be okay. Nothing seems more weak and foolish and powerless than a baby. And Ahaz, probably just like many of us, not a fan of empty, hollow promises. Not a fan of being weak or powerless. Is anyone here a fan of empty, hollow promises and being weak and powerless? No, I didn't think so. He's, he's just like us, isn't he? He has this word from God. He has this baby from God, but no, nothing seems more weak and foolish and powerless than a word and a baby. And so rather than trusting God, he takes matters into his own hands. He allies himself with someone that in his eyes can actually do something, can actually save him. And looking back, we can see that, that was a terrible decision that really destroyed his nation. But in the moment, from a human perspective, it would have seemed like the most logical decision possible. So that's a baby. Now let's look at a word and a baby. Because, I mean, in reality, we're not looking at this passage today because of Ahaz. We're, we're looking at this passage because of Christmas. And I know I just said this baby that was promised to Ahaz in the original context is Isaiah's son, not Jesus. But if you've ever read the story of Jesus' birth or heard the story of Jesus' birth, you'll know the writers of the New Testament see this promise of a sign of a virgin conceiving and bearing a child as being ultimately fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. So this prophecy, it's about Isaiah's son. How can it also be about Jesus? And I think there's two things to note here. First, the Bible always has two levels of authorship. There's a human author, but also God is at work in the writing of the Bible. And so even if all that Isaiah saw in this prophecy is his own son, God had a bigger perspective. God saw Isaiah's son plus Jesus as being the fulfillment of this prophecy. But second, I think Isaiah probably did see something more in this prophecy. Because in chapter 8, this baby Emmanuel is born as a sign of judgment against Judah. The chapter is quite dark. And then in chapter 9, Isaiah speaks of a time of restoration, a time where the people who walked in darkness will see a great light. And guess what's going to be part of that restoration? A baby. A baby who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I'm not going to go too in-depth there because Evangel covered that last week. But it certainly appears that Isaiah saw this first baby, this first Emmanuel, as a sign of judgment against God's people. But at the same time, he's looking forward to another Emmanuel, another baby who will reign on King David's throne, where Ahaz is right now, making a terrible mess of things. But this baby is going to rule on that throne with justice and righteousness and peace, and his kingdom will never end, and it's going to be amazing. And that second Emmanuel that Isaiah is looking forward to is the Emmanuel we celebrate at Christmas. It's Jesus, God with us. You see, Ahaz, he had the promise of God. He was offered a sign from God, but he rejected the promise and the sign. 
He refused to trust God. He instead took matters into his own hands. And he did this because, as we just said, God's ways appeared foolish. And as I was telling the story of Ahaz, I asked you, wouldn't it be great to have God come and speak his promises directly to us when we're going through trials? And I think a lot of us would love that, wouldn't we? For God to just come to us during tough times and say, it's going to be okay. But guess what? God has spoken to us in our trials. He's given us his word. The Bible, it applies to all of our lives, every situation we face. And not only has God spoken to us in our trials, he's given us a sign to prove that his word is true. He's given us a baby born of a virgin who is called Emmanuel, God with us. But you know the problem? The problem is we are far more like Ahaz than we want to admit. So rather than resting in God's promises, rather than encouraging ourselves with thoughts of this baby, we, like Ahaz, take matters into our own hands. And here's what I mean. So say you're in that position where your job is on the verge of being made redundant. God has spoken promises to you in that moment. For example, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, it says, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise from God that applies to you in that moment, in that situation. God has promised that he will provide everything you need. He will not be stingy. He will not be withholding. Everything you need, he will provide. That's pretty great, right? Now, what's the problem with this? Couple things. First, God promising to supply my every need and God promising to protect my job aren't always the same thing. And if I look at my list of needs in life as I see them and understand them, losing my job has never been something that I think I need. And so if God in his infinite wisdom knows that what I really need in life for what's best long-term is to lose my job, I want no part of that. I really don't. I'd rather take matters into my own hands and make sure that I don't lose my job than trust that God's ways are best. Anyone else relate to that? Second, I read this promise that God's going to provide my every need on a Monday morning. And then I go into work. And guess what? Things are exactly the same around the office as they were on Friday when I came home. And then couple days go by. It's Wednesday. It's been two days since I read this promise in my Bible, but guess what? Things at the office have just gotten worse. There's even more danger to my job. And so guess what? I'm tempted to take matters into my own hands. I'm tempted to go find the people who are the decision makers about who's going to get let go and talk bad about my employer, my coworkers in front of them. I'm tempted to steal credit for other people's work so I look more valuable to the company than everyone else. We look down on Ahaz for not trusting God, for not listening to God's promises, and instead taking matters into his own hands. But in day-to-day life, we do the exact same thing, don't we? Or maybe you're that parent dealing with a rebellious child. Guess what? God has spoken promises to you in that moment. Romans 8.28 says that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's a promise for you in that moment. Now, again, that doesn't mean every moment of your life is going to be absolutely comfortable and filled with bliss, but it means looking back from the standpoint of eternity, you'll see that every moment and every experience of your life, even 
the worst and most difficult ones, has been woven together into this beautiful tapestry that would be less beautiful if this trial was missing from it. And so you can endure through this time with hope and love and joy. But in that moment, as you're dealing with that difficult child, you know what feels way more real than that promise from God? Your anger towards your child? Your fear of how your child's gonna turn out? Your overwhelming desire to not have to deal with their behavior anymore? When we're in the trenches of day-to-day life, God's word often feels weak to us, just like it did to Ahaz. And this sign, this baby, really? Like my problem is a child and you're telling me that a baby is gonna make things better? That's the last thing I need right now. So rather than trusting God, we take matters into our own hands. We try to manipulate our children into doing what we want by bribing them or threatening them. We avoid our responsibility as parents and just ignore our child's rebellion because it's too much of a headache to deal with. We look down on Ahaz for not listening to God, for not trusting God's promises. But in day-to-day life, we do the exact same things. So what's our hope that things can change? What's our hope? Not only that circumstances can get better, but that our hearts can be transformed so that no matter what circumstances we face in life, we are able to face it with hope and love and joy and faith in God. Well, just like with Ahaz, it's a word and a baby. Only this baby isn't Isaiah's son, it's God's son. And the book of John tells us actually that this baby is the word of God made flesh. The word is the baby. This baby, Jesus, he's a sign of God's faithfulness to keep his promise, but he's also so much more. See, the baby that God sent Ahaz was a a sign of God's judgment against rebellion and sin. And Jesus is too, but here's the difference. For Ahaz, this sign was a guarantee that his nation would be judged for their lack of faith. With Jesus, the judgment falls on him so that we who trust in him can go free. Is that amazing? In Ahaz's day, this this baby sat in a crib and did nothing while the battle raged outside. This baby played absolutely no role in whether or not his side would get the victory. But for us, the child is the victor. Jesus' death on on the cross for our sin and his resurrection and victory over death are the guarantee that God's justice against sin is spent and satisfied so that we who trust in Jesus will not be crushed by it. His victory opens the door for us to have a new relationship with God. This baby, Jesus, and his victory over sin and death is the final word that God will provide every need that we have according to his riches and glory. This baby, Jesus, and the salvation he brings is the final word that all things, all things, will work together for good for those who love God, no matter how bad things are right now. This baby, Jesus, means no matter what we face in life this week, we can endure it with hope and love and peace and joy. It doesn't mean all our problems are gonna just magically disappear overnight, but it means no matter what you face this week, God has given you two tools to help you face it in a way that honors him. A word and a baby. I know it seems foolish to trust God when everything around you looks like God's ways won't work. But the whole message of Isaiah is that God works for those who trust in him. 
because of a word and a baby, we don't have to be like Ahaz, taking matters into our own hands, grasping for control. Instead, we can look to this baby. We can see the sign that God's word is secure and true. And so if we trust in him, we are secure too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your promises. Even when they seem foolish, God, there's so much power in your word. Thank you that you are a God who works for those who wait on him. And God, we confess that we are an impatient people. We don't like waiting for you. We don't like having to trust in you when we just want answers and solutions now. But God, I pray that you would teach us this week to trust your word, to trust in this baby that you have given us, to see the beauty and splendor of who you are, and to live in a way that honors you because we trust that you are in control and that you are working for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.